0: Do you like stuff and dislike other stuff? Do you find yourself wishing things were marginally better? But let's not get too crazy. Join us, we're Democrats. Democrats.
1: Our candidates come in a
0: wide range of colors and creeds, often bald, focus group tested, rhetoric and sensible industry-accepted solutions. We're here for you to project whatever the hell you want onto us, as long as you're a corporate lobbyist. We're barely passable.
1: Now offering neoliberalism in white, brown, black, and Asian Pacific Islander.
2: You know, I just, at this point, I just don't know if Joe Biden is, like, appealing to the left or, or trying to. Like, there was that little, there was a little bit of movement on the climate plan. Uh, it's like, you know, okay, maybe the, maybe the threat of existential um, destruction is... Uh, will move me my timeline forward a little bit but generally speaking i don't really think that uh the democratic party under joe biden i think their their attitude is sort of we won you lost get in line and, and shut up i i don't know if you heard about this but the dnc has been holding some some platform votes uh last week it held some platform uh votes and with with biden at the top of the ticket they were predictably disappointing um Yes, they were. Yes, indeed they were. So it it shook out like they voted down an amendment for Medicare for all uh, that, that only 36 people voted for it, 125 voted against it.
1: Um, yeah and 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 this is th- this is remarkable i mean yes obviously biden is very outspoken against medicare for all he's pushing a single-payer option which he has been pushing since the beginning of his campaign so uh, i'm even kind of wondering if that's even something that he would really push as president but he did actually want a single-payer option in let's, let's not call it a single payer let's,
2: let's call it what it is which is a which is a government option but it's it competes sure. on the open market with with the, with the private yes, plans, mean, which inevitably, yeah, the, the you know, it's a market, it's a market mechanism. It's not, it's not really a government,
1: uh, tool. Yeah. I mean, a single payer option is saying, no, I don't want to abolish private health insurance. So therefore I'm going to give progressives what I think they want. Um, uh, but I'm still going to basically maintain the same system that we have that is completely predatory and terrible. But here's, here's what, here's why this vote is just so ridiculous i mean it's 36 to 125 um the 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 house democratic caucus uh, 119 members are are sponsors of the medicare for all bill from the present uh session of congress 119 that is way more than 36 versus 125 um over 60% of democratic voters support medicare for all and that's only after a year of attacks on the program because bernie sanders ran on it as, as a presidential candidate over half of the country overall supports the program.
2: It's, it's insane. The, the corporate
3: arm of the DNC and the, you know, establishment arm of the DMC try to um, keep the rabble rousers from, you know, making too much trouble.
2: It's not very democratic.
3: Um, it's, It's very undemocratic to say the least
2: you know and and that wasn't the only that wasn't the only amendment they voted against now now just just keep in mind okay so as alex said medicare for all has more support in the house than is represented by this vote um it's also got overwhelming public support uh 69 according to the most recent polls majorities in both parties want this program and on top of all that our for-profit healthcare system is falling apart around us. I mean, millions of people, millions have lost their insurance because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And,
1: and because it's tied to employer. Right. Because it's tied to their employer. I mean, I think it's something like thirty to forty million people have lost right. that. And
2: I've spoken to I've spoken to doctors, I've spoken to nurses, and every single medical professional I've spoken to has told me that cost as a barrier to care is inherently makes it harder to contain this pandemic. So it's obviously the better Of course. It's obviously a better plan. Medicare for All is obviously the direction. It we just need blows to go. my
1: mind. It's like okay, so 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 um, the, the vote had roughly um, 160 voters. Uh, imagine only 36 of those people had the courage to vote for a program that is – it's patently obvious that that is the only way that we – only way out of this predicament.
2: This is Biden's Democratic Party, right? This is, this is what that is. And, and like, say what you mm-hmm. will, you know, Donald Trump is, a, is an absolute disaster who deserves to lose this election. But Joe Biden – doesn't deserve to win this election. And neither does the Democratic Party. Neither side in this election is really, you know, for doing what is best for the people. And and who knows? Maybe when Biden gets in, he'll be he'll be malleable. We've talked to people who think he'll be a, he'll be more malleable and amenable to the left. I don't see it right now. I think I think uh, Nina Turner probably said it best when she said it's like having to eat half a bowl of shit. Um
1: <laughs> yeah it's, it's a
0: better whole bowl of it's shit better, better a bowl than a whole shit. Bowl it's of better
2: shit. than a whole bullshit but you're still eating shit at the end of it your teeth are still going to have particles of shit in it you're still going to be Ooh. you know have that smear around your face and have to have to smell it you'll never get that taste out <laughs>
1: <laughs> when you put it that yeah, way, it sucks. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think I do think it's worth saying, uh, you know, personally, and I think a lot of people share this, including Noam Chomsky, that yes, half a bowl of shit, especially in this age of all kinds of absolute sort of apocalyptic shit going on, on the planet, half a bowl of shit is objectively better than a full bowl of shit. That doesn't in the mean that, and, you know, and, and- yes, in the short term, and that we, unfortunately, there's an election in 90 days, and that is the very short term, that is the most important term currently
2: right and the, but the long term we all know is that we miss our climate deadlines and we look back on this moment, and we and we and we say rightly that everybody who put us in this situation deserves blame and and will and and and, and really will not be remembered very kindly i mean who's right we will write ultimately we will well, write the, the good
3: books. news is ultimately there will be no one around to lay blame on anybody else
1: so. <laughs> Well, eventually, but, like, there will be people who are younger than our generation who will be around and will happily and deservedly lay the blame at the foot of, well, I would say the generation They will, but you know know what's
2: unfortunate is that we are going to get blamed, too. It's going to be a blanket thing. It's going to be like, well, the millennials let this happen. Yeah. They let the boomers. Disappear. We
1: were alive while the planet was still habitable. But listen, just to get back to to th- th- these yeah, tell votes. Us, tell us what else um, happened, Alex. I, we gotta- it gets worse, even just with health care. So there was another vote for expanding Medicare for children and people over fifty-five. Oh, so a very well. modest. <laughs> A very modest. Yep, that was voted down. Um, so, the, like the Biden campaign, they, they they did vote to support a public option, um, whatever that means. Um, then it means um, your there were all kinds of other.
2: Is still going to be calling the shots in DC.
1: For for the foreseeable stable. It means future, that your yeah. health
2: care will still have to be rationed. And that people will die from shortages of things because they won't be able to afford their fucking
1: insulin. I mean, this is this is the world that we are going to, that we will soon be living in. It is a hellscape. But listen, it's not just healthcare; it gets worse. Um, delegates rejected efforts on Monday to expand. Um, a section of a of, an, of a of a provision of the platform that said no United States aid may be used to facilitate annexation or violate Palestinian rights that went down thirty four to one seventeen. So wait,
2: let's just pause here for a second, just so just so our listeners are clear. That means that the Democratic Party, America's so called liberal party, is against universal health care and it is pro apartheid. <sighs>
1: Pretty much. Now, so, I mean, to, to, to give the full context, the DNC voted, uh, they do oppose the quote-unquote expansion of the illegal sal- settlements in Palestine. They do not oppose the current uh, settlements, which are also illegal, and they never use the word occupation um, in the language And language matters, of that, as, we, uh, as, we,
2: as we are learning today, or, or some of us are learning and others of us are ignoring. Uh, language language does matter. It, effect, it affects... Uh, how we perceive things and and how we perceive problems. And if you don't call these settlements illegal, you legitimize them. So it's, it's a bunch of
1: cowardice from the vast majority of these people who are running the party.
2: Wait, let me, let me go next. Let me give, let me give my, one of my favorites. (laughs) So, so they voted down the legalization of marijuana.
1: Right. Um, I haven't, wait, hold on. Have I looked at the stats of this? Yes. So two thirds of the country want to legalize pot. Um, 78% of Democrats want to legalize pot. three
2: thirds of this podcast.
1: That's right. Three. Yep. Yep. A hundred percent of this, these, these podcasts. (laughs) That's like 90%, right?
2: (laughs) Mark, are you high?
1: Something around that. Um yeah. I mean, and, and we live in the state of New York, which as blue as it is, um, it's still not legal here. Um, it's and a it's plant. A,
2: it, it, what the fuck? But also,
1: so like, it, it's, it's not even controversial that like pot is, is not even a, a danger. It, it is far better for you than alcohol is. And think about it. Democrats are the party it's of fun. so-called big government, right? They like, they like tax it's revenue. It's
2: fun. Let's just, let's stop right there. It's fun.
3: <laughs> but I don't, I don't think that any Democrat is actually opposed to legalizing marijuana. They're, they're cowardly. But what are they scared of? They they think that they have this perception. I mean, ever since, you know, like McGovern that, uh, America is this anti hippie, anti counterculture, Mm. um, that there's a, there's a core there and that, um, they're going to be on the fringe if they do something like uh, support marijuana legalization um when they they haven't realized that they are the cent- the they, they are the core
2: now they they the, look the party is just out of step with with what needs to happen yeah. like like forget forget what's popular in the polls let's just talk about what what America needs to do to like unfuck itself because we're pretty fucked as far as as far as like first world countries go we're sort of we're backpedaling we are quickly devolving into this like you know social darwinist experiment that is that that's going to kill you know thousands and thousands hundreds of thousands of people i mean that's that's what's happening right now we are seeing that experiment fail and so legalizing pot may, would get a bunch of people out of out of prisons we have the highest prison population in the world get a bunch of people out of prison immediately instantly a good thing right Medicare for all. Everybody can see a doctor. Care is need based. You get you get sick. You go to the doctor. You don't have to haggle with your insurance company. You get you get what you need done. No cost barrier. The only barrier you have to overcome is that. Should I go to the doctor? Is this serious enough to warrant going to the doctor? Like, you know, there should be as few barriers to care as possible. These are just basic, basic things that we need to do as a modern country. And if we don't do them, we you know, we'll be, the, we, not only will we be the laughing stock of the world, nobody will want to come here.
0: Well,
1: that's already happening. I mean, there's been a campaign from the executive branch to make people, um, not want to come here. And it's been very successful. I, um,
3: I used to think that the Democrats were just out of step. I mean, the establishment Democrats. Um, but then I saw this video of Alan Greenspan, um, about 20 years ago that resurfaced and he was chalking up the success of the economy to worker insecurity. And that was not just like a a passing thing. Like he he really meant that America and, you know, it's corporate overlords are trying to do everything that they can to make uh, regular people as desperate as possible so that they will work at whatever job we can give them. And America will be as efficient as possible. So I really do think now it's not just a matter of a simple matter of the Democrats not wanting to raise taxes, for example, to um, untie healthcare from your employer. I really think that the the leaders in charge of this party have a deeper motive, which is to keep people basically enslaved to their jobs
2: well right because that's who's who Who are their donors Who who's who's paying for them
1: greenspan was a republican just so you know
3: i think he was he he was chair of the fed under bush right
1: okay yeah because he was 87 to 06 he was in charge of the fed from 87 to 06 so he spanned you know a republican democrat and then another Republican. yeah I I, he- I heard about him under with regard to Clinton, Clint, so. right, same here because I wasn't paying attention in the eighties.
2: It's, it's relevant though because look, the, the fact of the matter is, Mark, I think you're absolutely right. I think the fact of the matter is that the party leadership is is bought. It's it, or or ideologically aligned with the interests of business. They still believe that that what is best for global capital is best for for people and that has failed time and time again and it just speaks to the irresponsibility of democratic voters in keeping to that they keep re-electing these same people that they keep choosing these same people like and that's not it's not just their fault it's they that they get they get you know fed these uh this this shit through corporate media sp- repeatedly just all the time they they get this reinforced like well if if you vote for what you want you're gonna lose and it's like at a certain point, so many people agree with you, you're you're not going to fucking
1: lose. Most of
2: the country wants. Medicaid but also, for
1: all. and it's worth saying, until recent elections, a lot of times Democratic primary voters didn't have a choice. I mean, Elliot Engel didn't have a challenger for many, many terms in a row, and then when he got a serious one after what thirty years of hardly anything, Jamal Bowman beat him easily. Look, it's time to, so, yeah,
2: it's time to get rid of these motherfuckers.
1: You know, 2018 was a huge uh, wave of these new challengers. Because of Trump, they said, fuck, like, we got to do something. You know, the Democratic Party hasn't obviously didn't do it. Like, they, they they didn't do much in the eight years of Obama. And then they need certainly, I mean, they, they've essentially caused, like, the Trump wave. And now we have to do something. And then, you know, so 2018 was, was really good for several insurgents. And I think we're going to have a lot more um, this time yeah, around.
2: Yeah, I just don't think that the people who gave us Trump are going to save us from it. So what?
3: No, and and you would have thought you would have thought I thought, as someone who ad- admittedly was very much in the weeds in 2016, but then got out of the weeds. I I really thought that congratulations that um <laughs> that that and 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 now back in the How'd weeds do it yeah um oh. I thought uh I thought Darn. after 2016 like it was it was just agreed upon that that. The, the, the whole establishment, the ideology there, the, um you know, Hillary Clinton's entire power structure and, and just the whole idea of doing things had been and campaign rebuked, strategy, fat- mm-hmm. fatally rebuked, you know, we're going to try again, um, baby. A- and, and, um, I'm surprised now that, uh, you know, it's, it's, as in power as it has ever been. Um, and it's frustrating and it's frustrating. It's doubly frustrating because we have, because there's no other viable option right. <laughs> and there's just Trump on the other <laughs> side. So you're, you're in between a rock and a hard right. Place. Of course you're not going to um, go for
2: for him, but like it's, <laughs> yeah. but you know what it is? It's, it's, uh, I, I mean, I don't know about you, but I fluctuate between just abject, just dis- like hopelessness and rage like pure pure unbridled rage at the situation just that that we face that that this is the option that these are the options and you know i have to say i think even some centrists are starting to recognize that there's a problem with the party because joe biden is the nominee i think that even even his supporters kind of acknowledge like i haven't seen people trying to sell him as like oh this great guy like besides the biden campaign but i think people somewhat know like yeah he sucks but he's what we got because we didn't want Bernie. And now this is what we're stuck well, with. Well, I think, so look, I think
1: even the people who do like him, who are like pro Biden, like, yes, we want this. We want kind of like the Obama era to return. They're not super excited about him in the way that the Trump fanatics well, are excited about Trump me. because Biden is doing nothing radical, nothing interesting, um, nothing that's going to motivate people. Um, and while I do think that he's probably going to win, I mean, this is unprecedented, how bad that Trump has fucked up COVID, and we're going to have over 200,000 deaths by November, probably a lot more than that. I mean, it's going to be really bad. Um, I, it, it, it would seem almost impossible for Trump to win, but there's a lot of other factors. Massive voter suppression, fear-mongering over vote by mail, uh, Trump's big mega donor in charge of USPS. There's a lot of stuff I'm very worried about in terms of the administration of the election.
2: I also don't think it's imp- he's an incumbent. A his his opponent is uh, incapable of making you know public appearances, and that hurts. Right,
1: the debates could change, it,
2: and, and well, now they're like, oh well, when Biden shouldn't debate Trump, like all the deb-
1: yeah. like for well, frankly, you shouldn't. We I mean, it would know. be smart to not just not do it. I mean, that would actually be really smart if they can yeah. somehow get away with that. I don't think they can.
2: It's bad for democracy. If I'm sorry, but it is objectively worse for our democracy if we have presidential candidates
1: who don't debate each other who don't Oh, i think it's terrible but i think it's even worse for a democracy if a proto-fascist president gets another four but, years
2: but what are you ignore so then you're acknowledging that if biden debates trump it's going to be really bad
1: <laughs> absolutely i'm the first one to say it he sucks so this is he this can't is, string a sentence this together is the, it's gonna this be terrible is
2: the, this is the real reason that people don't want biden debating trump is because they realize it'll be a bloodbath
1: of course i mean if they well, don't
3: say it they're lying i mean Bi- biden is the you know the fire escape like it's not the, it's not the best pair of stairs you'll ever walk on and it's gonna go downward not upward but at least you're not going to be in a burning building anymore. that is a
1: fantastic yeah, it's a
2: great analogy way eh? but you may lose all your shit but at least you'll be alive
3: yeah yeah
2: you'll be alive to see it burn i
3: do feel i do feel like that's where we're at right now
1: i agree I mean, it's, the house is on fire. I mean, you got to get out. I really do think that's it. And that's why, like, I mean, I'm saying things that I never would have said months ago. It's just, we are in this crazy, crazy time and predicament. And we have the absolute worst person leading our country who could, you could possibly imagine being president. For
2: the record though. um, Yeah. I mean, for the, I, I totally agree with that. I, I'm 100% between the two of them. I do have a preference that Joe Biden win the election, obviously. I'm not insane, but I also think that um, I I also acknowledge that Biden is, is a trash heap and that his presidency will be a trash heap. We will miss our climate deadlines. And one day, one day we will look back and all of the motherfuckers who put us in this position, we will name you. We will write your fucking names down and we will know who the fuck you are so that our kids learn your mistakes and don't mm. make them.
1: And it's not just this. It's, it's 2016. It's, 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 and it goes back to the failures of the Obama. I mean, Obama in tw- 2008, remember, he ran as like a green candidate. Like, I'm going to do a green jobs program that barely, nothing really happened of any significance. Um, 2016. Um, there there was a candidate there who wanted to completely transform our carbon economy 2020 There's a candidate who 100% was behind the Green New Deal a whole new deal for green jobs and, and the economy so um, you know, yes, would, this is not going to be an era of U.S. history where people are uh, come out of here at all looking good. It's,
2: it's going to be – yeah, it's going to be bad. Look, the Democratic Party needs to be better. It just – it needs to be. And you know what? If they lose in November, which is a possibility because their base is not as excited uh, – or or Biden's base is not as excited to vote for him as Trump's base is. They, they could lose. Um, it doesn't seem likely. But they could lose. And if they do, the people who are to blame are the people who don't embrace things that most Americans want. If you don't turn out voters, it is your fault. Just like it was it was Bernie's fault that he didn't turn out bigger numbers this primary. Absolutely, I will f- I'll say that. It was Bernie Sanders' fault that he didn't do that. Also, the establishment lined up against him, but he didn't turn out enough voters. And they were always going to line up against him. So, you know, look, this is this is where we're at. It's uh, it's not great. It's it's a bad situation. It's going to get worse. Um, we may get Trump out, but at, but at that point, it's all hands on deck to hold to, to make sure that Biden is either a one term president or goes along with the program, which I don't think he'll do. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Gilded Age. As always, I'm Walker Bragman.
1: I'm Alex Koch. I'm Mark Colangelo.
2: And today, we're going to be talking about the DNC. And how fucked up it is. <laughs> <laughs>
1: We have two wonderful guests uh, coming on today, Nomiki Konst, uh, a long-term journalist and the host of the Nomiki Show, uh, a previous Bernie Sanders surrogate um, who has had a lot of interactions with the DNC, uh, as well as Brent Welder, a former uh, Democratic Kansas congressional candidate and a current DNC member who was just involved in these votes. We'll be right back. You know. <laughs>
2: The, the dnc platform we've we've had a we've had we've heard a lot about it what's what's going on um with some fairly controversial votes uh voting down medicare for all voting down um banning corporate lobbyists from serving on the dnc uh and a number of other a number of other um things but i was hoping that that uh you, uh, Nomi, and um, and Brent, that both of you could, could sort of give us an idea, give our listeners an idea of how everything is sort of shaking out and how it's breaking down.
0: Well, I mean, Brent was just on the committee, as I, I, so I can only speak to the past um, and sort of my reflections on it in this moment. But, um, you know, in the 2016 platform committee, which Brent and I were both on, uh, it, was, it was just kind of this amazing, beautiful moment, um, even though it was very hard. Because I think so many activists who got involved on the Bernie campaign didn't really understand, uh, even myself, I mean, I've, I've been in the DNC, like just how how, um, how cemented the lobbyist like pipeline was in the DNC and how powerful they were over even well-meaning um, Hillary delegates. I mean, there are a lot of people, I think, that were supporting Hillary because they wanted a woman... Uh, for president or just other reasons, you know, local elected officials just aren't involved in the, the business of the DNC and the Democratic Party. And, you know, when you pushed uh, a bunch of, of business-minded Democrats up against activists, like real activists who had to raise money to get to the platform committee, who had to, like, organize locally, who Bernie um, and the team thought were were, were were great assets to the movement, uh, there was there were actual, like, there was, like, a rally in the actual platform committee meeting and then you had a bunch of people on the outside they are supporting us. And I don't think that the DNC had ever seen anything, I know they hadn't seen anything like that because nobody cared about the platform committee in the past. It would just happen in a dark room in a basement and they just move on and they get to put it on their resume and a bunch of donors felt good about saying they were on the platform committee and then there you go. And we had real policy debate and and conversations that I don't think the Democrats were, were used to having. Um, and it was filmed, and, you know, you had great speakers like Cornell West and Nina Turner and uh, Josh Fox and Ben Jealous and Brent, uh, you know, getting up on stage fighting for issues like, I don't know, protecting Social Security. So senior citizens don't have to eat cat food, an actual story that was presented. And then you'd see on the other hand, aggressively, you know, lifetime lobbyists who were... Who were um, roping in the votes for for the Hillary side, telling everybody, you have to vote this down. And you would see, and they started to defect. There were, there were Hillary supporters who were saying, I didn't sign up for this. This is not what I believe in. This is not the Democratic Party I believe in. So it was a real clash of ideas over the soul of the Democratic Party. But at the end of the day, I just, I mean, this is my perspective, and I want to be very clear about that. It's not Senator Sanders' perspective, or, or really, um, you know, it's my perspective. A platform doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything if none of the Democrats uh, that have that have the line, don't stand by the platform. So it was very theatrical, uh, but at that time, at that time, when we were fighting over the soul of the party, you know, the whole world that was caring about politics was watching it, and so there was a real conversation about who are we as a party. Juxtapose that to this platform, it's not the same situation. Everyone's over a Zoom call, no one knew about it. I mean, no one knew about the last one if it weren't for Bernie pushing it out. And. Um, and I think there was a a, a there was an exhaustion from a lot of folks like myself who just feel like the Democrats put things into committees uh, to to burn out the movement. And I feel like right now that leverage could have been used in a different way. Um, but Brent, you know, you know, you were there and and you were on the rules committee, and I would just you know I think that. Uh, you know, I'd love to hear what you have to say, too. So I don't want to talk well, over so,
4: you. So many of the things you've said, too, bring up so many emotions and so many, uh, you know, ideas or things that, that I think we need to, to ash out during this as well. And, uh, you know, I agree with everything you just said. You know, actually, one one place you started with was talking about how, the idea of people actually coming to into the DNC and into these committees with an actual idea or a policy idea or an agenda um, or wanting to make a positive difference was so extremely foreign to them. And it reminded me of, you know, we were all down in Florida for this, for this platform meeting in 2016. And, you know, sitting at the bar were a couple of the top communications people for the DNC and I believe for Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. Two of the very top people, and so I, you know, just got in, just got into a, a discussion with them, just kind of by happenstance, and um, and you know, I just I just mentioned to them in passing. That, you know, we, we had just come out of this big contentious primary between Bernie and Hillary Clinton. And obviously, everyone knew at the time that there was this huge, deep divide between the progressives and the establishment side of the party. And I mentioned to them that Cenk Uger, who, you know, I've, I've been a, a paying member of the Young Turks for the last 10 years, I said, Cenk Uger has endorsed Hillary Clinton. Um, obviously, he was a huge supporter of Bernie Sanders. It would make a ton of sense. For Hillary Clinton to go on either the Young Turks or some other progressive media to talk about her campaign and her, you know, candidacy. And I said, yes, of course, you know, there's going to be some tough questions, but you can pick progressive outlets that the the questioning will be very respectful and very honest, right? And I said, I think it'll give her a great opportunity to defend herself and, or even just, you know, proactively try to attract the votes of of that huge, huge, enormous segment of voters that ultimately she lost and and that cost her the election. But the the thing is, the, the point of me saying this is, the faces and the looks that I got back when I said that to these um, communications directors for the DNC and Hillary's campaign, it wasn't even like disgust for progressives or, oh my goodness, how, how crazy that would be. It was like, they didn't even know what I was talking about. They yeah. literally had not heard of the young Turks. They were yeah. like, what's this young Turks? Who's, you know, Cenk Uger? I don't know. You know, I don't really understand that was, and this was like, Right before the convention in 2016. And then Hillary doesn't, then she wonders why she didn't get a large segment of the progressive vote. And ultimately that that cost her the presidency. And now we have clown of the earth, Donald Trump. They didn't even know it existed. And um, that was the same thing. They, they had no idea. You know, I got up there and, and made an amendment to um, say that as a party, we stand for getting money out of politics. Uh, Nomi, who I didn't know at the time, um, jumped up and immediately I believe was the very first person and she gave this amazing articulate impassioned speech in support of my amendment um, and then the first person that spoke in opposition to it which was pre-planned by the establishment was literally a corporate lobbyist okay <laughs> who got up and was going to explain to the National Press Corps in America and me and Nomi and everyone else why it was such a bad idea to get money out of politics well at the And I promise I'll be quiet and let you guys get a word in Edwise in a second here. But like I said, <laughs> there's just so much to talk about. I thought that was just maybe a stupid mistake. Like, oh my goodness, how could you be so dumb to have a corporate lobbyist be the first person to speak up in opposition of this? But then this year, I was on the rules committee and gave a very similar um, anti-corruption amendment. Literally, the first person they had speak was a corporate lobbyist. And during his speech, he was talking about being a corporate lobbyist, and I realized they don't see it as a bug; they see it as a feature. They really do. They and they think that it's convincing somebody by getting corporate lobbyists up there that are chalk. Th- this committee is chock full of them to get up there and say, "Oh, look at me! I'm such a nice guy. How could I be?" You know, it's it's unbelievable. So you know, that's that's just the beginning of where things stand. I think with the DNC.
0: Do you remember what they said? Was there reasoning? Was it like, we need to keep up with the Republicans or something? That's what I always hear is like, oh, we need to take the money because like we're, we're going to be behind.
4: You know, I think this time uh, what they said was, well, oh, this this issue, this this is not the right moment for us to adopt the <laughs> rule, right? I mean, it's literally the best moment. Like, it, it only happens every four years. There's this enormous election and this whole electoral process, and we're all together. Um, and my amendments were um, to, to make what actually already exists a, a ban on corporate PAC money to the DNC to make it permanent and to not allow corporate lobbyists to serve on the DNC. What further investigation do you have to do? And what ended up happening, and, oh, God, I mean, I'm sure maybe we can get into this later. I don't want to, you know, uh, but they ended up actually rigging the vote, one, literally rigging the vote, rigging the voting machine 100% so that people couldn't vote on my amendment. Then they had a uh, this law, this corporate lobbyist call for a motion to table the amendment, which was completely out of order because it was supposed to be during this vote where they weren't letting vote us, us vote because they um, rigged the voting machine. Luckily, they accidentally left my mic turned on because the whole thing was completely scripted. And so nobody would have ever heard anything from me on the live stream. The press wouldn't have heard from me or anything. They actually left it on. And I was able to immediately start protesting this, which led to a, a, a series of events Whoops. Um, a series of events where ultimately right when they were trying to adjourn the meeting, they had to go back and then do an up and down vote on this. So at least we could get the establishment people on the record on the anti-corruption amendment. So, so,
2: so I guess I want to ask, cause both of you have, have done this work to try to bring the the democratic party to the left, um, and to, to varying degrees of success, but but just going over the votes that that have happened recently, uh, they voted down Medicare as we mentioned before. They voted down Medicare for all. They voted to uh, against expanding Medicare to children and people over fifty five. Um, the they uh, rejected your anti uh, anti corporate money amendment. They voted against legalizing marijuana. Um, there is no fracking ban. So there's no and there's no there's no defunding the police there's none of this and and then of course you've got Biden who is against all of those things anyway who's being advised by Larry Summers and now Ken Salazar a fracking attorney so my question is what what real success can the left claim is this party ref- reformable or or is it like a you know a, a temporary uh, is it a temporary fixture that, that may be needed this time, but ultimately also needs to be brought down?
0: So when we were in the Unity Reform Commission, which um, for, for those who, who aren't aware... It came out of the DNC in 2016 when uh, Senator Sanders surrendered the rest of his delegates to Hillary Clinton so that she could clinch the nomination because I just want to remind folks, Secretary Clinton did not have enough delegates to clinch the nomination at the convention and it would have been a split convention which would have caused a lot of floor fighting which of course nobody wanted that uh, because they wanted to defeat Donald Trump. They didn't want that on, on TV. You know, we saw how that's, I mean, there's history of that. Uh, <laughs> and it doesn't always bode well for anyone, really. Um, the left, the right, whatever. So he, as a result, he um, negotiated a commission that uh, would change the rules of the Democratic Party and of the primary process, and it was called the Unity Reform Commission. And through that experience, I was one of the Bernie eight, is what we called them, the eight people who served. Um, we were in the minority because Secretary Clinton Technically, had more delegates, uh, and and Tom Perez had three more. What I learned through that, partly because of just uh, having to delve into the rules, I was specifically on the party reform committee. In that, there were other committees like to reform caucuses, to reform primaries, to uh, to take on super delegates. But mine was specifically, and we all worked on these issues, but mine was specifically to reform the party rules. And I got really deep into the mechanics and interviewing folks. Um, and I did some of that when I was covering the DNC chair race as the TYT uh, correspondent doing that. But um, what I learned was that the mastery of the DNC is what exactly Brent just said. They play with the rules. They play with the rules against their own rules. They violate their own rules. And then they play, um, they do essentially election rigging. They do uh Uh, stretch things out into committees and commissions so people don't care about it anymore. They accidentally forget to set up a why I mean, there's some rules that are very simple, like all meetings are supposed to be public. I remember in one of the Unity Reform Commission meetings, we were backstage, and um, backstage, we were in a conference room negotiating uh, some, some important stuff, I forgot which resolutions, but some resolutions, and a reporter came in, a very smart reporter, and he goes, uh, yeah, and he was just sitting there watching us. And then finally, one of the staffers of the DNC walked up and says, you can't be in here. And he goes, well, you know, and he pulls out the rules book and he goes, actually, all meetings are supposed to be open. Open to the press, open to the public. So there are these open rules meetings. They violate their own rules left and right. But what they also do is they um, they, they, they take advantage of, of some existing rules like appointments. So to oversight committees. So, so I'm saying this for a reason because Until you get to a couple things, which we tried to do in the Unity Reform Commission. Um, Until you uh, kick out the conflicts of interest, which probably I think any major corporation in America has, you know, that's that's not ethical, including, like, major banks that, you know, violate laws all the time. Uh, conflicts of interest, meaning lobbyists, consultants who do business with the DNC, do business with big candidates, presidential candidates, they're often put into positions uh, where they're not elected as DNC members, but they're appointed by the chair into oversight committees in which, okay, there are a handful of reformers, union leaders, but at the end of the day, the big chunk of, of the you know, the big chunk of the executive committee, the rules committee, is made up of these folks who are going to vote in line with the chair's interests, which are essentially the uh, big business interests that, that control our DNC. So banning conflicts of interest, that was probably the thing that we were most aggressively attacked on personally me. Um, uh, having a transparent budget, like a budget budget oversight, where are we spending our money? How are we spending our money? You know, DNC members don't know this. They run for DNC. They think they're part of some sort of democratic process. But at the end of the day, as Dr. Zogby says, a longtime DNC member, they're just props. And then the third thing that I think it was really Bernie's game, but I, you know, I'll cautiously say I I, I don't think was the right strategy, was to, to, to ignore reforming the DNC, really reforming the DNC, um... Because, you, because when you win the presidency, you get to choose the chair and kind of recreate your DNC. So right now, reform is held up because you have a couple of party rules that are, are holding up progress. Party rules meaning the chair shouldn't be able to appoint anybody. And they're appointing all of the oversight committees. All of them. That's why I say these platform committees, and with all due respect, I knew we are on the Rules Committee, are a waste of time. Because at the end of the day, we're outnumbered, number one. Number two, there are people there who have complete conflicts of interest who are doing the party rigging. And number three, they cycle in new people into the committee meetings that don't know the rules, so they don't know what to look for. They don't know. That thing you just told me, they did that in the, the Keith Ellison and Tom Perez uh, vote. Oh, suddenly the voting machines didn't work. And then there was this big delay. And then in between that delay, President Obama and Valerie Jarrett started calling DNC members and moving votes from Keith Ellison to Tom Perez, so Tom Perez won. They violated a rule in that uh, in between the votes, because there were two ballot votes, Tom Perez did not win on the first ballot. In between those two votes, the both candidates were supposed to have access to the vote count so that they could personally lobby in between and win those votes back. It's like how Congress works. It's like how everything works. You have access to who voted for what, but the DNC staff said, oh, well, uh, we didn't have time to, uh, to count up the ballots, and we couldn't get those numbers. Well, you had, like, a year to figure that out, and it's, like, not like you have 50 staff members who are able to count 400 votes.
4: Well, and, and, I, and if I can jump in on, and just kind of uh, along those lines real, real quick, uh, Walker, if that's okay... Um, you know, she brought up President Obama. So I actually, believe it or not, was one of the first staffers on President Obama's president first presidential campaign in the Iowa caucus really, really early on. And, um, you know, and I mean, this was 12 years ago. I, you know, hadn't fully seen the progressive light probably at that point. Um, and, you know, worked my ass off to get him elected. And then sometime down the road, it, you probably all remember this perhaps, um, there was a huge, one of the huge data leaks, you know, email leaks, that kind of thing. And the, the most shocking thing that I've probably ever seen in my entire life, as far as politics and corruption is concerned, it came out that when after, I, I believe it was either a month before Obama had actually won or like right after he won, but before he had taken the presidency, he, he or his chief of staff, I believe it was his chief of staff, got an email from Citibank saying exactly who they were to put on his entire cabinet. And he literally picked all of those same people for his cabinet. Now <laughs> I mean yes corruption on the dnc committee is terrible and sounds terrible but it goes so much further than that it's 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 laced through the presidency the administration congress both parties
2: yes so so i think then the obvious the obvious question then is is can this be reformed it sounds like it's a giant mess and that we're not making you know we're ultimately not going to make the progress we need to make and I mean, we've we've covered climate change on, on this show pretty extensively in the last uh, in, for our last few episodes. And, um, you know, given the deadlines that we face just in terms of what our planet can support and what it what it can't like, does do we have time to, to worry about this party or or is it is it beyond is it so corrupt, so broken and so opposed to basic things that we need? That it, well, If, it if just I can just take a quick
4: crack at, at that specific question. Um, you know, and I was actually just on Jimmy Dore's show, uh, a couple days ago. <laughs> we
0: know <laughs> and, what he you know, thinks. Yeah, exactly. We know what he thinks. <laughs> um,
4: and, you know, and a lot of the things he says, I actually agree with. And if the point is that the, the party is completely corrupt and completely wrong at, at the top levels in the leadership, 100% agree with that. Here's the difference, Walker. And this is, you know, my perspective is that to me, the democratic party is not the, the leadership. It's the people. Right. The people, the the rank and file, the voters, the activists, the people of the party. And I've been a a grassroots organizer for, you know, probably 20 years at this point. I've run for Congress. Um, You know, I'm an attorney. I've met with all these kind of people on all these kind of different issues. And what I find at the grassroots level is that Democrats are progressive and they're good people. Um, and they have very, very similar goals to all of us that are on this podcast right now. Um, now, yes, of course, is there diverse views and different views and differences of opinion? Yes. But you know what what, there, what I also see among them, and I especially see this in Kansas where I live, is that they have been convinced by the leadership that they have to vote against their own beliefs in the primaries or else we will never win in the general. It's completely backwards because the tru- I believe the truth is that if they would that's actually right. just start following their heart and their beliefs, that we actually would start winning in the generals. But they have been so beaten down and so convinced of that that um, you know the, the, if you consider the people to be the party, which is 99% of the party, then that's what, what, what gives me hope that... You know, we can get all of these millions, tens of millions, what, 100 million people that consider themselves to be Democrats to get behind the very agenda that they already believe in. But that the only way to do it is we have to do the tremendously hard work to crack through this terrible, hard corruption and terrible, terrible leadership of the party um, that's happening at the very top in Washington.
1: So how do you, how do you go about doing that? Um, I guess, and I want to, there's a lot of different questions we have for you guys about this dynamic, but also about the specific votes that, that happened last week. Um, but you know, what it kind of looks like to me is the party establishment has said, well, look, you know, Bernie tried twice. He didn't win the progress, like the leftists lost, um, the progressives, uh, some of the progressives have kind of been molded back into sort of like our wing, I guess, if you, if you will. And, um, we don't really care what the left have to say and we're just going to we're just going to keep you know keep doing the same basically um and, and, and you know i mean joe crowley was was ousted by aoc but we have people like hakeem jeffries who kind of seem who are kind of part of the centrist uh kind of they kind of appear progressive but they're really not and they're part of the sort of democratic party centrist establishment probably being groomed to be a potential speaker going forward i mean pelosi can't have that much longer a speaker uh she's in her 80s um so i mean what how do you go how do you go about kind of dismantling this power within the party itself at this point?
0: So I've, I've really been struggling with this because, um, you know, this question about the party, I, I, I personally get it a lot through the unity reform commission, um, a lot, like what's, what's the point. And it's, it's a nuanced take because unfortunately the line that we're all running on across the country, when Brent runs for office, when AOC runs for office, Is the Democratic Party line. And so there's great power in the Democratic Party line. So just logistically, there is, um, you know, there's a lot of power in the purpose of the Democratic Party. And I think what Brent says so well is that, you know, we have to stop looking at the DNC as this like all, you know, corrupt institution. I believe Keith Ellison did win the election. Um, I've researched those votes, I know what happened. Nobody wants to speak you out about it. tell us about more it, about that? But I believe he I, won the election. I'm interested
4: because I put in a lot of time to try, try to help elect him, and um, this the first time hearing about that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, and this is ultimately the power that the Democrat Party has, and this is, I mean, kind of getting to my point about how we need to reform it, or not reform the party, but... Re- but, but, but really think about these things and not be so absolutist and get into the grooves. And this is what I really love about the work that all of you guys are doing. Alex, you've followed the money, you've broken down down these committees, and that's really how we need to understand, okay, well, who are these people that are pulling the strings? And when you start to see, oh, none of them are elected DNC members? You start to see that the DNC membership is actually upset about this. There is a divide that goes way beyond Bernie, goes way beyond Keith Ellison, It has to do with people who worked very, very hard to get onto the DNC, raised money uh, to, to buy hats, to like hand out, you know, at their like state committee meetings, to just like real retail politics because they are Democrats, they don't understand the um, political-industrial complex. They just want to see Democrats in office because, you know, they're in Republican districts or they're in states that have uh, completely been ignored by the Democratic Party, and they want to take it into their own agency to reform it. And so in terms of the vote with Keith Ellison, um, it it goes back to what I was saying earlier about, like, when the vote happened on the first ballot versus the second ballot and not revealing the votes. Um, You know, I talked about it a a little bit on, on TYT, and I think this is really where we have to fight a little bit harder and stop stop with the Stockholm Syndrome, enough. Like, enough of like, we don't want to piss off Bernie. We don't want to ruin Bernie's chance of of running for president. We don't want to piss off this person. We don't want to do that. If some corruption happens, we need to get that out there. We need to tell people, because they really don't respond well to pressure and exposure. I mean, I'm sure you guys have seen this when you do your reporting. They don't respond well, they shut down, they don't answer questions. so I think, you know, in terms of, like, moving forward, what is the point of this? What, how do we, uh, how do we operate in this world? Um, I think we have to be very strategic about our tactics. I, I and I, I am not a big fan of trusting institutions for support, and that means leftist institutions too, because they have their own agendas, and they're often tied to money. So, you know, I, you know I'll give an example of New York, and, and um, I'm probably going to get flack for this, but sorry, I'm going to say it. DSA won a bunch of seats in the assembly, okay? They put a lot of energy into these assembly races in New York. They won a bunch, great, wonderful. There's too much on the line, the assembly is a supermajority. We could have put our energy into places where we're actually gonna make a difference. We have to be extremely strategic about where we run people, why we run people in these places. That's how the DCCC does it, that's how Emily's List does it, that's how all of these organizations do it to hold their power. They are very strategic. They are surgical about where they put their energy. And with all due respect to Bernie, I don't think the, the leverage using all of his energy on these committees was the best use of, of energy. I don't know what the answer is. I think it's it's really maybe um, it was great about AOC knocking out Crowley. was He was potentially the first. He was going to be the Speaker of the House also. He, he was, that district, and I think locally this disrupted New York politics, is AOC's part of the Bronx machine, or, I mean, Bronx, where the Bronx machine exists, and the Queens machine. And those two machines determine everything in New York City. So that was a surgical, whether it was intentional or not, a surgical win, and it made a huge difference so we well, need now to start Jamal thinking Bowman
1: about went in and, and did a, he won in a neighboring district um he beat elliot angle this time around in 2020 and now he's been inducted into the squad so he's the first um cis man in the squad yeah. uh i wonder if i wonder if they'll add another uh, couple members i guess it depends on what happens um but um can we just step back a little bit, because um, I don't think we've given our listeners a really kind of an overview of, first of all, like, what was going on on Monday, and then kind of also, we've talked about there's a lot of lobbyists, um, corporate lobbyists, as DNC members, but the DNC is many hundreds of people, right? So, I mean, who else are, well, I guess, like, what percentage would you say are lobbyists, and, and what other kinds of people are, are part of the DNC who vote in these membership, kinds Membership, you mean? The DNC yes. membership? Yes, the membership.
0: Um so there are 437, 36, I might be off by a few, members of the DNC. Um, then there are appointed members, right? And so, uh, like, and they're based on committees. So you have every state has a set of members that get elected, and then there are committees, like the executive committee, for instance, that are all appointed. Uh, there's the, you know, the DNC sitting rules committee, which is separate from the convention rules committee. Don't want to confuse people. It's weird. It overlaps, but it's not the same. <laughs> so this the the DNC meets twice a year, uh, except for presidential years. So they, um, because they have these other committee meetings around the convention, and the DNC, uh, I would say about. It could be a little bit off. I would say about like forty, thirty-seven percent or so of the DNC is appointed, um, and within that is a consultant class and lobbyist class. And you know, you have to understand like sometimes people aren't registered lobbyists, but they work for firms that do shadow lobbying. Shadow so lobbying. exactly, shadow lobbying. <laughs> um, and you know, I, I, a better way of saying it is I think that they have conflicts. Now, aside from that, within the membership itself, the, the elected membership, there is probably like maybe 10% of folks that are also lobbyists and consultants but have run. So, you know, there's a reason why we put forward this ban conflicts of interest uh, resolution and they went so aggressively after us um, because it would really disrupt the makeup of the DNC and the power of the DNC and how it was structured. Also, would would shift how superdelegates were. You know, a lot of people were very attached to the idea of superdelegates, you know, fighting that but if we had just changed a couple of rules, superdelegates wouldn't have been an issue.
1: Just, I was actually surprised that, um, I didn't realize that that kind of provisional uh the sort of demotion of delegates to the second ballot in presidential elections was only a, t- a sort of a, a temporary thing i thought it was just it, they had decided that's how it was going to be from now on but so so you know brent you, you guys had to just fight for that to be put on for the 2024 for that to continue for one more cycle right and i know there was a proposal to make it permanent which it sounds well, like it's well it's uh, uh, so yeah.
4: yeah and and let me say uh, you know and this is a good question to address this um, I've been seeing a lot of uh, criticism, um, you know, I think for the most part, respectful criticism lodged at, against Bernie over the last few weeks in the in the progressive community. I am not one of those people. Um, I think Bernie has done, I mean, a, br- a brilliant job getting t- tremendous change accomplished, and I can go into that. Um, I also think that Bernie knows his role. I think he has the inside outside strategy. And when you have an inside outside strategy, sometimes you kind of have to pretend that you're doing the inside stuff a little bit while allowing the movement to do what it does best, right? Um, An example of that is, um, going to this question you just asked me, there actually was a, a unity resolution passed at the Rules Committee that essentially said, well, we're strongly recommending to the DNC that they continue to not allow superdelegates to vote in the first ballot. Now, first of all, I think that the work that NOMI did and the other unity commission members did four years ago was absolutely astounding, astounding. Shocking that a, a what ultimately was a losing presidential candidate was able to get the establishment to dramatically reduce the the rigging of of elections for the Democratic nomination for president. To me, it was astounding. And literally the only reason we accomplished it was because Bernie Sanders had not only the courage to run against the Clinton machine, but the vision and the courage to run on a completely bold, super bold, progressive platform. Believe me, I was an activist for you know, 10, 15 years, whatever it is, before I ran for Congress. And I know the pressures. Once you're, once you're running for Congress and you're thinking about how am I gonna put this coalition of votes together to, to actually make sure I can get in and try to make a difference you know, it it really does make you think, well, should I really go so hard or should I really say it this way that I have been saying it? And I noticed that Bernie always said it bolder than I did. And I thought I was being pretty damn bold and I was here in Kansas, you know, running as a progressive. Um, and so I think, I think Bernie has done a tremendous job. I think he's using the inside outside strategy in the most brilliant way it's ever been done. And I actually, um, you know, uh, some of you have probably heard that as part of this unity um, resolution, this time around the Bernie campaign, people started calling rules committee members and asked them to drop their resolutions. Okay. I actually helped organize a rogue um, meeting of the committee members after the official Bernie one. And what I said to them is this, I said, come on folks. I said, Bernie's um, Bernie's agreement, his deal was they're going to do the unity resolution and they have to ask you to withdraw your amendments. That doesn't mean they want you to withdraw your amendments. Now, I'm not saying I'm not saying anything out of school because this hasn't been told to me by them or anything, but to me it was completely obvious. I said there's a big difference between him not wanting you to go on and talk about you know, gun control or $15 minimum wage or Medicare for all or anti-corruption, and having a deal that, that passes this really great you know, rule that that lessens the, the corrupting influence of superdelegates. And as part of that deal, he has to ask you. To drop your amendments. And I said, your role, your responsibility now is to say no. And that's exactly what I did. I, you know, and I was super polite about it. I respectfully declined. And guess what? The very person, mm-hmm. you know, one of the, you know, the, the top guy probably in Bernie's world, Jeff Weaver, called me after the, um, the rules committee. And when I, and when I checked the, uh, the, the vote count, he voted for my, my anti-corruption resolution. Um, so I just want, you know, people to kind of think about this in a way of, I really think Bernie's playing chess, not checkers, here. And I think he, you know, has accomplished so much. People didn't even know what Medicare for All was before he started running. Fifteen dollars minimum wage did not have nearly the, the momentum.
2: But Brent, it's it's it the the agreement then is to extend something that was already accomplished in twenty sixteen to twenty twenty four, right? Like like it seems it seems like we're like falling back into the typical Democratic. I'm I'm so sorry. My cat is going insane in the background. I don't know if you can hear it, but she's We can't don't, hear we don't, it. We, don't, we don't hear it. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she's been yelling. Covid times and, and <laughs> like throwing around a, a mouse and in in, in uh, I guess protest of, of not being paid attention to. Anyway, um, they're needy. Sorry. <laughs> so fucking needy. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, uh, but it it does seem like like. Uh, the left may be falling into this um, role that Democrats typically play, which, which is where the Republicans keep making you know progress and they're fighting constantly to preserve the last thing that they yes. won. And that That's doesn't seem like a viable strategy. Again, like we have, we have maybe a decade to avert some of the more catastrophic effects of climate change. And we've already got catastrophic climate change yeah. built in. So, this this party it's like it it seems like the establishment is on like a power trip where they're doing all of this stuff to preserve their preserve their power and yet they use that leverage very when they actually govern they 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 don't use it for for things that we really need i mean i i don't think the democratic party has accomplished anything very like big um or comparable to to like the great society yeah. <laughs> since the great society i mean nothing 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 even comes close to that scale like the affordable care act was a a heritage civil rights act plan well yeah but that's part of the the great society you have the you know you have all of these the civil rights legislation but that was like the last time the democratic party seemed to believe in doing big things um and and so we face these problems i guess what i'm getting at is we face these problems that are so big and and require such immediate action like they're obstacles. They're standing in the way of that. Yeah. Um, And at what point, at what point do people who are involved with the party just say, you know what you guys, um, like you're not, you're not working with us. So we're going to actively work against you in, in a way that, you know, you don't recover from.
0: I think it's institutional conditioning and a little bit of Stockholm syndrome. And, um, you know, and while, of course I respect everything that Senator Sanders has inspired and it's really as Brent said like absolutely unheard of that like this has happened in the last 6 years and and it's um and it's beautiful and inspirational but I think he was able to do that because he really wasn't institutionalized by the Democrats he was an independent he didn't play you know Like, as an independent senator, and I think this is why the Democratic, like, institutional Democrats hate him so much as not being a Democrat, he didn't have to, like, run around the country and fundraise to get a good committee spot. You know, he caucused with Democrats. He does do that. I want to make that important. He does. He just doesn't do it the way that they want them to do it. And I think there is some (laughs) bitterness from his his colleagues in that they got to go do that they have to raise, you know, spend eight hours or 10 hours on call time a week or whatever it is that they have to do for the party, uh, that they have to do these fundraisers, they have to, you know, lock hands, and he just kind of, you know, marched to the beat of his own drum. And that's amazing. With that being said, I also think as a result, he's not fluent in party politics. So this is where I'm, you know, I'm gonna be a little edgy. I don't think he understands, and that's okay. That's actually his strength. He doesn't see the game that they're playing that they've been playing for 35 years with progressives. And so, I agree with you, Brent, on a lot of stuff. But I, I actually agree with with Walker on this. The stakes are too high for these little incremental changes. That's why I talked about like DSA being more strategic about their wins because they're bulldozing us right now. They're bulldozing us. They have. There are very few of them, and they're bulldozing a movement. And they're handing out a few things here and there, and saying, "Oh, look at you're making so much progress. You know, amazing, Elliot Engel are er, lost. Amazing. But we need like." 30 more members in Congress. <laughs> like, they sometimes have these waves against Republicans, like 2004 or 1992, the year of the women, um, or 2016 even, against Republicans, and hopefully this year too. But it's usually as a result of some sort of mishap with Republicans, you know, low approval ratings, whatever it is, the down economy, that we win. It's not necessarily because of their strategic... In some ways, people show up and they run. I think we... And we have to understand um, the course of history is not always going to get us into these wave elections. And that's why all of us have to step up and be extremely thoughtful about how we fight. And I think my frustration with the Democratic Party is that they like to channel our energy into these committees. And I think, um, you know, it worked in 2016 because we had to make a point. It worked in the unity reform commission as much as it was frustrating as heck. Hell, can I say that, yeah? I don't know yeah. what I can say anymore. <laughs> Jesus fucking Anything Christ, no. Okay, man. good. Oh, my God. I'm a New Yorker. I feel like ah. <laughs> It was a fucking waste of time, guys. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> How fucking dare you swear on our motherfucking podcast? <laughs> but the Unity Reform Commission, the purpose there, is, as difficult as it was, was that we knew we needed to change the rules of the primary to make it better for Bernie to to run um, and become a front runner, And also... You know, it gave opportunities to other candidates like, you know, Cory Booker and Kamala Harris and Pete uh, um, to make, you know, (laughs) to run. but afterwards, I'm just like, we, wh- wh- why are we doing this? Why is our energy going back into like he- this is this is Joe Biden's party now? Like, it is absolutely Joe Biden's party. It's not Bernie's party anymore. They're yeah. giving I mean, us it's these the committees. Same party it's yeah. been
4: for several decades. Right. Exactly.
2: And, and, and it's 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 not gonna. It's not a party that's going to deliver on meaningful climate. Reform. Well, if I can just piggyback on
4: on what Nomi's saying because she brought up another idea that's been like, r- 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 I love doing these podcasts because things that like roll around in my brain for weeks on end get to come out, um, you know, she she was talking about the progressives using the same uh, strategic, uh, you know, strategies um, that the establishment is using. We absolutely need to do that. And one thing I really want to get across to progressives is we need to be way better at the politics that we're doing. And what I mean, and not, not by giving up our principles, by just being better at the nuts yeah. and bolts of how to run these elections. Okay. The reason that I was able to, um, you know, to have such a, I think, very successful congressional campaign in the state of Kansas on such a bold progressive agenda where I came this close to being elected to Congress was because I had come from before the, uh, working on establishment campaigns, the, the, some of the best campaigns that have been run, Obama's campaign, I had you know, other, other establishment campaigns, and I t- used their own tactics against them. Right. I didn't, I didn't sell out my principles. I didn't take corporate pack money, that yep. kind of stuff. But I did like, for instance, first thing I did when I started running was make an enormous list of not only all my friends, family members, colleagues, friends, other organizers I knew, but also made a list of people who happen to be progressive and have made big donations to candidates. And I sat down, my ass down for eight hours a day for, you know, 16 months and called them and That's raised the kind of money that I needed to run TV ads, to have a big professional field operation, to do more mailings than anyone in the race. And I would have won, except for, you know, because of my politics, the last three weeks, um, dark money came in against me to the tune of a million dollars, 700,000 from Emily's List and 300,000 from a group called Ending Spending. Um, But, you know, I still, yeah. (laughs) yeah.
2: (laughs) Ending Um, spending, wow.
4: That's that's some that is
2: some Because they're running out of money
0: they're just deciding to spend this all their was in money the primary <laughs> this was
4: in the primary the last three days ending spending spent oh, three hundred thousand dollars against me saying that i was too liberal for kansas they not only did like full-on tv ads everywhere um online social media ads everywhere robocalls text messages literally yeah. 2018 and then my, you know, uh, corporate Democrat opponent ended up narrowly winning. I, I had been up by 14 points in the polls um, just a few weeks before Sheree that.
2: Davis. That's right. Yeah. I, I remember when that, I remember when that, when, when, when uh, people were freaking out about like,
1: Oh, yeah. AOC endorsed well, you know. And
2: yeah. And people were, were like, I can't believe that she didn't endorse this woman of color. And it's, it's like, I just can't I can't help but feel like one day when we're going to look back when the equator is no longer habitable uh, and dengue fever is a seasonal illness in in places as far north as Chicago. The U- east coastline of the United States is at 495 or, or yeah. uh, you know I-95 and we're going to uh, we're going to look back and we're just going to wonder at how we were so focused on like what candidates looked like. As opposed to what they believed in, right? And, and it's just—it's the most absurd thing. Like it's only, its its absurd and, and infuriating, and and I think perverse. <laughs> like what what our priorities seem to be today, where that's the frame that we well, that I we think that's that's it, right? Through.
0: like we can't sit here and wait for this incrementalism that we're subject to because our psychology, in in many cases, I think in the last three years, has been conditioned to these like little little party games. And, you know, one thing we have to keep in mind here is that the party is weaker than it's ever been. The party is locally weaker because they just zapped funds out of state parties. Uh, New York, which has a, uh, used to have a vibrant machine even five years ago, kind of separate from this whole situation with with Bernie bringing in progress, there were a, a shit ton of indictments and lawmakers who went to jail for corruption, um, sexual harassment, corruption, paying off people, and so as a result, the mechanisms of power in New York were already disruptive, uh, disrupted and prime for progressive revolution. So you you, it is weaker than it's ever been, but th- what they're exercising right now is 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 how whatever levers of control they have, which is still very real. Um, on people who are not familiar with them. And so, you know, I, that's why these podcasts are so great is that they teach people about the mechanisms of power and how they work and what their game is, but I also don't want people to come become, like, a, extremely, just from my personal perspective, like, not become so obsessed with it that that's all they think is there. And we have to do these sweeping wave. We have to be... DSA electoralism is amazing. I'm so happy it's happening, and it's the perfect... Um, you know, it's, 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 it's like the perfect coalition of activists and, th- you know, thought leaders and people understand history and, like, it's a vibrant community. But I think the electoralism of the movement really does have to be surgical in a sense that you can, you can, like, like chess, right? You could take out five, uh, you know, five pawns or you can take out two knights, a queen, and then eventually the king in one move. What do you want to do? And AOC was one of those taking out a bunch of people In one move
1: So in terms of 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 just Um just One thing I wonder about, going back to, to the platform and, and how, mm-hmm. um, not only did, did they vote down Medicare for All, but they also voted against legalizing pot, which is overwhelmingly popular among all parties. Uh, all of so, these so things I'm, are overwhelmingly one, popular.
2: Yeah. A new poll found that 69% of Americans support Medicare for yeah. All. Yeah,
1: and the polls so are, are, but yeah, I mean, consistently for several years, I mean, like over half of the country, at least 50% or more, supports Medicare for All. Over 60% of the Democratic party does and that's after a year and a half of attacks on medicare for all because bernie was running for president but my question is if you're 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 these party establishment people who are running the party who are clinging to power who are uh rigging votes and things like that, um, if if they really want to hold on to power, why aren't they just saying, okay, look, like maybe we got to just move into the 20, 21st century on these issues that are overwhelmingly popular, especially with our base. And we have an enthusiasm gap as was shown in 2016. Like how is this smart at all politically for them?
2: Not to mention that it's just the right thing to do. Like we're in the middle of a pandemic, it's wiped it's out unreal. insurance for for five million people to twenty. Mi- it like the the averages that I or the numbers that I've seen have ranged from like five million. That was the recent New York Times uh, report, and then there was a, another report that happened a few months ago that was like twenty four million people or something like that. So like either way, it just seems like these are basic necessary things like that.
0: Because these are people making money off of disaster, off of suffering off of loss, you know, not only are they only invested in quarterly profits, but I mean, many of the people who are on the rules committee, uh, I can think of a handful right now, are directly making money, strategically making money off of After Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, they started, I I can't even, they started businesses on the ground, they started buying up real estate, they were representing the bondholders in Puerto Rico after the economy collapsed. This is who we're dealing with. This is, it's not like Democrats who are just a little bit conservative and these are people who actually make money off of the suffering and pain of the pandemic right now.
4: And, and I think I can kind of piggyback on what uh, Nomi has just been talking about right now and kind of bring it back full circle to something she said at the beginning as well. By the way, I want to be the the, the president of, of Nomi's fan club for the last four years. I, everything she's saying today is is so awesome. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, you know, what, what she's saying about Thank who cares <laughs> about the platform, who cares about this rules committee, the party is, is, is we, completely weak, probably weaker than it's ever been. All of that is completely true, right? Um, and she's actually had more, more time with the DNC than I have, to the extent that she's been a committee member. I've just been on a couple of these committees. And, um, But the, the, the reason that I think these specific committees were important and the fact that Bernie was able to put people like Nomi and others on these committees was because it's some of the only times that progressives get taken seriously or even are listened to at all by everyone else, whether it's the mainstream press, which then yeah. turns into the mainstream voters. Like I said, they, they didn't even know what the Young Turks was. How, how insane is that? How many millions of, of followers do they have? Billions of views, right? They didn't even know who, who it was. And um, so the party is super weak, and if we spend a lot of time worrying too much about who's actually on this specific DNC national committee or this subcommittee or that subcommittee, that's absolutely the wrong thing to be worrying about. But to the extent that we can use it as as what's going on in the DNC is symbolic of what's going on in Congress and in the the actual presidential administrations, which this is one of the best opportunities we as progressives have to make that case. That's, you know, I think the most important part of all of this.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think you're you're spot on. And 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 it's exciting because I think progressives are also learning through us. Like while these committees are frustrating and I have my objections in terms of leverage and energy and all that. Um, Progressives are learning through these communities, they're learning through these conversations, so even in a local party, they're aware of what's to come. Um, they, I don't think half the people, I don't think the DNC would know about, I know this for a fact, that the elected DNC members, like members of the DNC, not elected officials, wouldn't even understand some of the problems in the DNC had it not been for the 2016 election. And that's what led to the first chair vote in ever. Um, with Keith Ellison, and then debates about it, and people who didn't support Bernie Sanders getting up, like Ray Buckley and talking about how he's an executive committee member who never, he's the chair of the New Hampshire party, party, saying he had never seen a budget before. He opened up that conversation, but it wouldn't have happened if we didn't have progressives in the room highlighting these things. And so we learned from these experiences. We're just not learning fast enough, and I think that's where I, I sense Walker's frustration is that, like, Climate change is real. A pandemic is like in our face, and uh, lobbyists are just like out of touch and don't understand the suffering or don't care about the suffering of most Americans.
3: I think the lobbyists and the and the the you know entrenched corporate power on the Democratic side. I think it's a bit more warped than just not caring. I think they think that the only way this is like it's a classic neoliberal paradigm. Like this is the way to actually help things, this is the only way we can do um, business that change comes through money and, and you know.
4: Uh, well, look at look at the 2016 power. election, Hillary had twice as much money as Donald Trump, but his message resonated because, you know, a, a truth teller without the truth is going to be someone who's not even pretending to tell the truth, right? Um, and so all the mm. money in the world, all the literally like mm. endless amounts of money That's that we great. had, didn't do a damn thing, and she lost to the least qualified person in the United States, uh, who is a complete clown and a complete jackass, and who now is our president.
3: Right. I, I really thought after 2016 that we were not going to. I did not think we'd be here again <laughs> in 2020. It is it's supremely frustrating. I, I wonder how the dynamic changes without if it wasn't Trump on the like literally an existential threat on the other side. Because a lot of a lot of what I get, I'm sure a lot of a lot of what you, everyone here gets, is people saying, you know, any energy spent fighting the Democratic Party is just enabling. Um, you know, this horrible existential monster to get reelected. So what, you know, why are you spending your time doing that? Which I think, well, they say that every, misguided, but. they
4: say that every four years. I mean, I was, I was on John Kerry's presidential campaign from the very, very beginning of the Iowa caucus. And believe me, George W. Bush at the time, when I mean, we were in the middle of the Iraq war, he was uh, rightfully probably called, you know, all kinds of every name in the book. People said that he was murdering people, all this kind of stuff. He was demonized just as much as, as Trump is now. Um, and, it happens literally every single time. And so, um, you know the the strategy the way we've been doing it isn't going to work along with what you just said where you thought the 2016 (laughs) campaign was going to change everything i i and i don't consider myself to be very politically naive in general um but i was certain after donald trump got elected that there was going to be this like enormous sea change among democrats to realize that this strategy that we've done time and time and time again of trying to push through an establishment centrist and, and because that's the Way to win a presidential election. I was sure that after we lost to Donald Trump, of all people, um, that finally it was going. to I naively thought finally that's going to wake everybody up. Um, It it really
3: felt like a death blow.
2: I thought that Hillary was like, okay, so she's got to be like the Mitt Romney of the of the party, like (laughs) you know, not right down to their insulting, you know, large swaths of the population, but like like she's got to be like the last gasp of this old establishment but it turns out that she was the John McCain she was the she was the the figure that they'd had in their back pocket for years who they knew that they would run one day and then that when that day came like it it just didn't work out yeah um and so you know the re- the republicans um they could have gone full full like Sarah Palin tea party after that but they didn't they ended up picking Romney next who was sort of a more, I guess, centrist Republican, and he ends up losing. So, I mean, there it's it's somewhat frightening. I see I see a lot of troubling things with uh, what's going on with Biden. I know he's kicking ass in the polls right now, but the excitement gap b- between between Trump and Biden is is a real thing. Um, and I just saw I just saw something about how you know swing voters are sticking with Trump largely um in, in in and that's that's you know that's dangerous but mm-hmm.
1: i don't know so, how accurate that is though i mean I, what I, polling i've seen is, is not the, this is not the case
2: i i looked at at this time polling in 2016 versus now and in every state biden is doing marginally better than hillary clinton except florida where he's doing a lot better but in wisconsin he's actually doing worse one,
0: one thing to keep in mind, though, and, and I agree with you, they did adjust the polling quite a bit. Uh, they made a lot of poll. I mean, a lot of big polling com- newsrooms and realized that they were not assessing the data. I don't know if you guys remember this after two thousand sixteen. They had like massive reassessments and how like the polling was just so skewed and wrong. And actually, if you look at some of the polling in two thousand sixteen, the signals were there two weeks before. I just, just talked to somebody who was a newsroom an executive there, and he was like, "It just wasn't." sexy like there was that was where the group thing came in and like all the cable news networks were uh you know in denial I mean I I remember being advised on so I was still I supported Hillary Clinton in the general election um you know I live in New York I can do whatever I want and I did whatever I wanted with my vote but when I went on air (laughs) make that very clear um
2: did you vote for Stein
0: I did not. I wrote somebody in. Uh, Ooh, breaking news. Oh, no. (laughs) But I did go on air on election night and say that Hillary Clinton, um, I was advised to say, uh, all the talking points on Hillary Clinton winning and running the best campaign ever and strategy and you know and I get the clips every once in a while someone in the right wing is like don't listen to this lady this is what she says but that was everybody was told to say these things when you were a panelist on air and people don't understand it's groupthink that gets into the brains of the journalists who went to the same schools as these people who don't go on the ground who've never been to Kansas or if they do they well, go in and out imagine so if they would have
4: taken the money they spent say, oh, on that absolutely. amazing <laughs> victory stage and and spent it in Pennsylvania you know I mean you know <laughs> you know Walker um, you mentioned Mitt Romney and right. John McCain. And I, I was up knocking doors in the Iowa caucus for Bernie Sanders this time around. And, um, and there was a talking point that I used that was the most successful of anything I've ever found as far as convincing, you know, a, a Democrat to vote for a progressive candidate. And I want to share that with you guys, because you guys are all great progressive thinkers and your listeners are as well. And And that is this, I said, every single presidential election in my adult life the more centrist candidate has lost the election, okay? Um, And let's start going back. So, you know, I turned 18 and I think it was 1999. So the first election was 2000 where Gore was considered the more centrist between the two. He was the Southern Democrat. He lost the election. Four years later, um, you know, absolutely John Kerry was seen as the more centrist with George W. Bush. He lost the election. Four years later, of course, obviously, John McCain was seen more centrist as Barack Obama. John McCain lost the election. Then the four years later, obviously, Romney was seen as the more centrist between the two. Romney lost the election. Four years later, 2012, or where where am I now? Um, uh, oh, yes, uh, Hil- uh, Hillary and, and Trump. Twice Hillary 16. was the more centrist, yeah. and she lost the election. For the last 20 years... Every single time, the more centrist candidate has lost the presidential election. So where is this theory coming from that we need a more centrist candidate to win? It's completely bullshit.
0: I think some of it has to do with, and I believe that she was on your, um, uh, well, actually, I think something has to do with it, really, just the the McGovern uh, election. That was how the neoliberalists justified everything. Yeah,
1: yeah. It was a long time ago, but the, the problem is, you know, a lot of these people who are making decisions like Pelosi and all of them, they were adults at that time. These yes. are very, very old people. They're still scarred from something 50 years these ago. People
4: I was talking to these Iowa caucus voters. They were 50, 60, 70 year old, you know, folks die in the wall party people. And when I would mention that to them and they would stop and think about it, all of a sudden they were open and a lot more willing to vote for uh, Bernie in the caucus.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. So, Nomi, I, I know that you have to I know that you have to. Run for call time, but <laughs> uh, but I, I did want to thank you for for joining us today.
0: Thank you guys so much. I'm I'm really happy that you're creating the space to have these conversations. Um, they're they're not always the sexiest, but I think everybody on this call makes it interesting. And you know, it's and we need to have these conversations about strategy. And I I'm I'm really grateful that you guys uh, focus on in on this and for your hard work on you know, these committees, Brent, this was not an easy fight, and I'm really grateful to you for, for standing up and standing up for really the root cause of all this, which is the money in politics, and Alex, you've been, Alex and Walker, you guys, I mean, just you're the whole team here, you've gotten so good about getting to the root of money and breaking down these extremely complicated, strategically complicated, designed to confuse people, um, structures, and it's, you know, I just want to add one thing. On the platform committee, you, you may recall, Brent, um, in 2016, there were some union leaders. And there were a couple union leaders who were with Hillary but were aghast as to how some of the stuff was happening. And I remember one of the union leaders, without naming names, came up to me and he goes, I've been in unions for 45 years of my life. I have never seen any vote run this way before my life. There are some <laughs> yeah. shenanigans that happen in union halls. 45 years, you can imagine what kind of shenanigans would happen 45 years ago and how much people would get in trouble. He's like, I've never seen anything like well, what's happening in the and, the and my final
4: word will be this. It will so. be disagreeing with my hero Nomi. I think everything I think everything about this conversation has been completely <laughs> sexy. So thank you guys so much.
0: <laughs> well yeah. <laughs> That's because you're a lawyer.
4: <laughs> it's it's gilded
1: age, folks. It just always seems to be that. Hey, way.
4: let me if I can throw and ask people to go to my Twitter account, Brentwelder.com. <laughs> at, at Brent <laughs> I always forget to put in a plug of some sort. <laughs> i just wanted to awesome. ask you both
2: one last question if i could it's very quick what leverage does the left really have at this point If biden looks like he's going to win um it looks as though uh that that's what's going to happen and and the you know in the past the only leverage the left has really had is the credible threat of withholding their their ballot um So, but what, but that might, that probably won't make a difference this time. So to me, uh, the
4: only leverage or really virtually the only leverage we have is we have to win primaries. We have to win elections. That's literally the only leverage. I am not, unfortunately, a believer that, you know, all of us going out outside the the Biden White House and holding signs or making calls to corrupt Congress people is going to do a damn thing. Um, we absolutely need to win elections, and the only way we can really honestly do that is to start, you know, picking the right level to run it. And for a lot of people, that's a very low level of government, school board, city council, whatever it may be in a small town, maybe mayor, that kind of thing. Or if you have some more political experience, maybe make a run for Congress. I mean, you know, I, my first run ever was run for Congress, but... But we have to start winning these elections. we have to, because that's the only way we're going to get power. I just don't think that any amount of lobbying in a corrupt system is going to do any good.
0: Um, I think our leverage there's three things. Number one, uh, journalists like yourselves continuing to break down this process and name names and really um, you know expose the special interest because I think they don't they don't handle it well. um for the most part, they're not used to the light being shined on them. They like operating in the shadows, and I think some of these folks. Um you know, when they're, when they're involved in the process of picking uh, a vice presidential candidate, like they don't like being uh, exposed for why they're choosing that person or what interest they have in choosing that person. So that stuff is really good reporting. and unfortunately, as we know, journalism is in crisis. Uh, and, and those who are reporting on this process, it's, it's very um, hit piece oriented. and you know, even the Kamala hit piece that went out this week, I was just like, oh man. You know, it it was it reeked of hit piece and there could have been some very good quality journalism done around the vice presidential picks. But unfortunately, uh, it went sensational. Um, So number one, exposing the players and really calling them out. Number two, uh, I think that it's not about this primary. I think it's afterwards. There's nowhere to hide uh, if Biden is elected because suddenly they're in office. Um, I'm sure they're going to pivot and say that, like, the left is working with the right in attacking Democrats and we need to protect the Democrats. They'll, they'll always say that. But at the end of the day, Trump can't be their cover anymore. Um, they're, you know and, and I think it will reveal that there are a lot of Democrats who, uh, I think in the pri- primary process, we saw that. There are a lot of Democrats who don't love Biden. Um, And we're looking for something else and maybe just had a bad taste in their mouth from 2016 and didn't support Bernie. But I think that there's a real opportunity for us to coalesce uh, for the well-meaning Democrats and the left to pressure, you know, our our existing lawmakers. And um, number three, uh, numbers and time. You know, somebody told me, a a very well-respected on-air host told me recently, Nomi, stop stressing out so much. They're all going to be dead in five years.
1: I mean,
2: it's just
0: a fact. Come on, guys! Like
1: Kissinger's still alive. I don't know how Henry Kissinger is still alive. It's insane. Some people are are that evil that like the the evil just can't die. But no, no, you're right. I mean, people are going to have to age out. But 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 we'll see what the next generation of of the establishment is going to look like.
0: But they're not as sharp. I will. I can actually say this: the neoliberal elders also didn't groom the next generation very well. Because as much as we're like, oh, Hakeem Jeffries and all these people are like, they, they need constituencies the way that the boomers had the boomers. And they're like Gen Xers. They just, Pete did not have the constituency of the the, the millennials and, and Zoomers and some of the Gen X. Um, he had a very small constituency and it was extremely focused on Iowa and everything was dependent on Iowa to blow up. But at the end of the day that was not a sustainable model. So I really do think that the numbers and time are, are gonna to work to our advantage. But the problem is is that like simultaneously on that graph you have climate change and the pandemic just like eating us. So I don't know where that yeah, goes. That's the
1: thing, I, is, yeah. I did a visual for
0: those listening. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Very impressive um, spe- visual. <laughs> Speaking of time, yeah, I think it's time to wrap up. Um, but again, thank yep. you both for coming on. Um, Check out uh, Brent on Twitter at Brent uh, Welder, and um, check out the Nomiky Show right. on YouTube, which is uh, <laughs> a, an awesome, fairly new uh, channel that Nomiky has started, and uh, we're uh, we're we're definitely fans of that. So um, we'll be expecting our invites.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, I'm doing. Oh, oh wait, can I pitch this implicit, now? Actually, Walker, <laughs> I should do this. Wait, wait, we are doing a DNC special. I don't have all the details oh. yet, but. Um, DNC and RNC we're gonna do five days every single day in the morning we're gonna do a show Um, covering the previous day and like what's to come so I would love to have all of you on I was thinking about it like oh guests that we need to have on so you are welcome on the DNC special um, (laughs) and RNC if you really care I would
4: love to I'll bring my cheerleading (laughs) uniform and everything well thank (laughs) you guys so much for all the work amazing work you guys do and you know having these conversations uh, I think is really you know the most important thing of all because I really do believe that power starts with concentric circles right you just keep growing out and out and out and out um, until we have a majority and, and we're on our way. So. That's right. Well, thank you so much All right, again. You. And uh, All right. y'all take care out there.
0: Thanks, guys. Take care.
1: Thanks, All guys. right. Bye. Audio editing by Alex Koch. Original music by Direwolf.